Well, let me first say thank you for coming back. If you're joining us in live stream, thank you for uh, jumping on as well. Uh, it's so good to be with you again as we finish what we started this morning, but actually it's an introduction to what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks, and that is to look deeper at who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. So tonight we're going to be looking specifically at an introduction to the work of the Holy Spirit. We looked this morning at an introduction to who He is, and tonight we're going to look briefly at what He does. Let me explain from the very beginning a little bit like this morning, there's going to be a lot of Scripture, um, a lot of Scripture, and we're going to, this is going to be encyclopedic, and this is the way that the church does what we call systematic theology. And what I mean by that is you take different passages about the same topic, the same theological nuance, and you stitch them together to see the fullness of that theological premise. And the church is called not only to follow, but to do systematic theology. So to do this is in no way in conflict with our verse-by-verse -verse exposition through Ephesians or any other book. It's important that we pull the car over occasionally, even in those studies of books, but even tonight and this month in our study of the Holy Spirit, we just pull over to systematize what the Bible says about a particular subject. A.W. Tozer is a theologian with whom almost every Christian today should be familiar. If you're not, please come and talk to me. I'll give you some great reading by Mr. Tozer. To read him is to take a lot of extra time to underline and highlight so many gems. One of the things he wrote, I referenced the first hour this morning, is one of, in one of his books decades ago still rings so loudly in my memory. I want to read you the full context of this quote because I think it'll give greater insight to the sentence that I want to isolate. Tozer has famously written, quote, Sin is always an act of wrong judgment. To commit a sin, a man must, for the moment, believe things that are different from what they really are. He must confound values. He must see the moral universe out of focus. He must accept a lie as truth and see truth as a lie. He must ignore the signs on the highway and drive with his eyes shut. He must act as if he had no soul and was not accountable for his moral choices. Sin is never a thing to be proud of. No act is wise that ignores remote consequences, and sin always does. Sin sees only today or at most tomorrow, Never the day after tomorrow, next month, or next year. Death and judgment are pushed aside as if they did not exist. And the sinner becomes, for the time, a practical atheist who by his act, sin, denies not only the existence of God, but the concept of life after death, end quote. Tozer says that in the moment of sin, Every man is a practical atheist. He may believe, say he believes in God, but he acts like God doesn't exist. How does this happen? The answer is that we forget the omniscience and omnipresence of God. As we saw this morning, we forget specifically that the Spirit of God is always present. He's always there. But there's a more personal and practical reason. When we sin, when we are anxious, when we are lonely, when we are unfaithful, when we are despondent, when we are unfruitful, when we are confused, when we are troubled, all of these issues can be traced to our lack of attention to the ministry of the Spirit of God in our lives. All of them can. Flip that over, that means that the answer to all these problems is a good, healthy understanding and dose of the theology of the permanent abiding presence of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. I've come to believe that one of the weakest points in the theology of our generation is pneumatology, is the study of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Shouldn't be the case. We begin studying this morning that the Holy Spirit is the person, a person of the Godhead. He is amazingly active the Holy Spirit has been involved in your life since you woke up this morning. And if you're a believer, he has been intimately involved in your life. And do you know it? He convicts, he condemns, 
He comforts, he illuminates, he rejoices over the attitude and actions of, of obedience. He grieves over our attitudes and actions of disobedience. He regenerates a human heart, he counsels, he baptizes, he grants gifts, he seals our salvation, he indwells the believer, he grants gifts to the members of the church individually and corporately. He reveals the mind of God, he reveals the mind of Jesus, he generates fellowship between believers, he draws us and woos us and saves us, and he even prays for us. Whether, whether you realize it or not, the Spirit of God has been whispering prayers into the ears of our Father about you all day and all week and all month and since your birth. Understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I am convinced, will bring immeasurable clarity to, to our thinking and to our living. You and I need the Holy Spirit, but we need an understanding of Him, perhaps even more, because He's going to do what He does. We're changed better when we understand who He is and what He does. Are you aware that if you're a Christian, you have already developed a relationship with the Spirit of God. He permanently abides with you. He is ever with you. But there's something else to grasp. If Jesus had not left the earth after his resurrection, we learned this morning, then the Holy Spirit would not have come in the way that he relates to us now. He's a gift. He's God himself come to be with us. Tonight's topic is on the work of the Holy Spirit, and this is, this is a crazy, impossible task to take a few minutes and talk about what the Holy Spirit does. And part of that is because He does what He does in concert with the Father and the Son. Greg Allison says this. He explains, while the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together inseparably, their roles in creation, redemption, and consummation are also distinct. That's important. Inseparable operations is what this is called. They all work together, but they all have nuanced distinctives in how they work as well. He goes on to say, the Spirit's work is particularly associated with speaking and the application of salvation, recreating and perfecting, and the indwelling of the people of God which is the, with the divine presence. The work of the Holy Spirit is important, but not theologically separated from the work of the Father and the work of the Son. As I said a moment ago, that's what we call in theology, they have inseparable operations, which is why it's wonderfully, and I mean this sincerely, wonderfully confusing. If I ask you who created the world, you would say God, and you'd be right. If I say which member of the Godhead, you would say the Father, and there are texts that say you're right. From Him, to Him, through Him are all things, Romans says. What if you said the Son? You would be right. Colossians 1 says that He was the agent of creation. What if you said the Spirit? You would be right. We'll see that in Genesis 1 verse 2. They have distinct nuanced activities and operations, but they are inseparable. Remember, we don't have a tripartite God, three parts. We have one God in three persons. All three divine persons act in perfect solidarity. Allison, again, is helpful here. Let me quote him. For example, the divine mission is presented as the father sending his sons so that sinful people alienated from the father might become adopted sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Galatians 4, 4 to 6 says. The three persons of the Trinity also engage in the church's mission. Everything that God does, all three members are operating in those activities. So even though the Trinity involves what we call inseparable operations, still some divine works are particularly the responsibility of the Spirit of God uniquely, especially. I'm not exactly sure how all that works out, but when we take Scripture at face value, we see that all the God has is involved in all of God's activity, but they have specific nuances. The Spirit didn't die on the cross. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Son did. That's distinctive, but they were all involved in that operation. So what I want to do for tonight 
is to look at a few. And I'm embarrassed to say how many when you start looking at the subpoints. So please don't judge me. We're going to look at a few. I'm calling it seven ways the Holy Spirit works. And one has multiple, multiple subpoints. Seven ways the Holy Spirit works. And this is really just to encourage you. This is us, you know, we were looking in Sunday school this morning about biblical discipleship, biblical counseling, systematic theology are believers sitting around the word of God, comparing and collating passages that the scriptures might counsel us to do and to be and to think better. Seven ways the Holy Spirit works and we are going to go at warp speed. So you can write these passages down if you want to. You might not want to try to turn to them all, but we'll make these available on the website first of the week. First thing we need to know is he creates and sustains. He creates and sustains. We first of all learn in the Bible that he created the universe. In Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God, this is an interesting Hebrew word, was moving over the surface of the waters. The best word is he was brooding like a chicken on an egg. He was hovering. He was there waiting for the universe to hatch. He was involved. He, involved in, he was involved in creating the cosmos. The spirit of God was. He also created each person in Job 33, 4. Job says, the spirit of God has made me. And the breath of the Almighty gives me breath, gives me life. I don't know if you've thought about this. We usually think of God creating us and we're right. But did you know that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God was, according to Job, the agent of you coming into existence? He also sustains his creatures and his creation. Psalm 104, verse 27. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give it to them. They gather it up. You open your hand. They are satisfied with good. Listen to what God is doing to sustain. You hide your face and they are dismayed. You take away their spirit and they expire and return to the dust, their breath. You send forth your spirit and they are created and you renew the face of the ground. In that passage, we see that God not only creates, the spirit of God creates, but he also renews and sustains every person. Every single time the four chambers of your heart work in concert to pull blood in, to pump blood out, to beat every, just put your finger on your pulse before you go to bed. Every time your heart constricts, pumps, that is the Spirit of God making sure you're sustained. That's worth thanksgiving. Number two, he convicts the heart of sin. John 16, 18, and when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Why, why are people convicted about sin? Well, we know in 2 Corinthians that people can be convicted and feel guilty about sin for, for two reasons. Number one, they're, they're afraid of the consequences. Even unbelievers don't like the consequences of sin. But there's also a repentance or a sin that's unto life. In other words, we see that this is an offense, like David said, against you and you only I've sinned. That conviction comes from the Spirit of God. He works to convict us in several ways. He uses his word. Have you ever read a passage in the Bible and you were instantly convicted about something that you're doing you shouldn't do, something you ought to do that you're not, a way that you're thinking, acting, behaving, talking, speaking, interacting with your, your friends, your family, and you're, you're convicted by that. That's the Spirit of God using the Word of God to come to bear on our conscience. He also uses conscience. Romans chapter 2 tells us that. The Spirit of God is alive in knowing what's right and wrong and what's dangerous is that conscience can actually be desensitized through sin and sin and sin, just like you would get calluses on your, your fingers and not feel the, the strain when you first start playing a stringed instrument and eventually you don't feel it anymore. That's the positive side of desensitization. The negative side is if you're sensitive to sin and you keep sinning, you become desensitized to sin. The conscience 
that is working is a wonderful thing. As long as it doesn't condemn you beyond what Jesus did on the cross, then that's not a godly conscience. That's a satanic conscience that wants to condemn you. So the Holy Spirit convicts us through his word, through our conscience. He also convicts us through the observation and correction of others. You ever had someone love you enough to say something like this? This is the way it goes in my family from books I've read. It's my sweet wife or this wonder woman that I may know. This woman just says, honey, she always starts like this. I I don't know what's in your heart, which tells me she knows exactly what's in my heart. She says, honey, I don't know what's in your heart, but wow, that sounded prideful the way you said that, or that was unkind the way you spoke to one of your sons, or that. That's the Holy Spirit coming to bear to convict our hearts that we have done wrong, that we are wrong and need correction. Praise God for that. He convicts the heart of sin. Think about this. this, Would Satan convict you of sin? (laughs) Of course not. Would someone else convict you of sin? Not unless they loved you and were being used by the Holy Spirit. People don't like correcting each other because we want to be liked. And typically when you correct someone, you're reticent, resistant to that because you think if I do that, they may not like me. If someone follows through with that, it's almost inevitably the work of the Spirit of God. So on the receiving side of that, instead of saying, wait, you're wrong. And by the way, I'm glad you're bringing up sin because I have a few things to talk to you about. Just stop and say, this is a grace. This is an evidence of the grace of God to correct my heart. Number three, he regenerates in salvation. We read this this morning, when the kindness of God, this is Titus chapter three, verses four to seven. When the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he, God, saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. How did God save you? How did God save me? What is the agency that he used to bring you and I to understand the gospel and to repent? How did he do that? By the washing of regeneration, that's new life, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, that's new life and sanctification, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. How? By the renewing of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 15, verse 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You know what that tells us? Every believer who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is fully man and truly God, every believer who embraces the gospel does so because of the revelation and the work of the Holy Spirit in the mind to make, to make that belief happen. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God, says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Do you hear that? Our affection and attraction to the Son of God is because of the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Romans 8, 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but... If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him, to God. He's at work within us. Now, let me just say this briefly. It's worthy of a whole sermon. Some people get confused about this this term, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. What does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Baptism is identification. Baptism was so closely associated with conversion in the early church that it became a synonym. I think that's what you see in Romans 6. Baptism saves you doesn't mean that the water saves you. It means your conversion is what saves you, and baptism is just shorthand for being converted. So the baptism of the Spirit is simply our association at our salvation experience with God through the Spirit's coming into our lives. You don't wait for a subsequent baptism of the Spirit after you're converted. You are identified, that's baptism, identified with the Spirit when you believe the gospel. 
Fourth, he renews in sanctification. This might be the most evident way that we experience the working of the Spirit of God in our life in a demonstrable, experiential way. He renews in sanctification. How does he do that? He illumines the Word. Adam is going to speak in a couple weeks about what that means, that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to apply and understand Scripture. He illumines the Word. He convicts the heart. He leads in guidance. He generates worship. He enables evangelism. He creates fellowship. And we'll be looking at all those nuances in the coming weeks. A few texts, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God, by the Father, God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and to obey Jesus Christ. The sanctifying work of the Spirit, the word sanctify means to make holy. Doesn't this make sense? The Holy Spirit works in your life toward holiness. We'll see in just a few weeks, part of the grieving of the Holy Spirit is when our hearts and our lives lean away from holiness and lean towards sin. Things that you watch that you shouldn't watch. I'm not just talking about the computer. I'm talking about movies and television shows or Internet sites, it, things that we look at that we shouldn't, that are not holy, things that we say that are not holy, things that we hear, things that we entertain. Sanctification means holy living. It's holyizing, if I can make up a word, holyizing your life. That's what sanctification is. The Spirit has a sanctifying work in our lives. How does He do that? He uses the Word. He uses our, our, our brothers and sisters. He uses our conscience all to come to bear on who we are that we need to change. Listen to the Spirit of God in sanctification in Romans chapter 8. We spent a lot of time when we studied in Romans. I was looking at how many sermons we did in Romans chapter 8 this afternoon. It was, it was a few. Paul says, Romans 8, 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. What he's saying is, as a Christian, you don't walk according to the impulses of your flesh. You walk according to the influence of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, there's our indwelling. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. If Christ is in you, through the though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, wow, we can say what? One work of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. There's, a, there's one to hang on your theological coat rack. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Holy Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. That's the end of that. But if you live by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. A Christian who understands his relationship with the Spirit of God cooperates with the Spirit in the doctrine of mortification. Remember that? Killing the sin in your life. Being aggressive and active. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if there's sin in your life, go to radical extremes to deal with it. If your right eye sins, pluck it out. Hope you're left-handed because he says, pick up the eye and throw it far from you. Uh, let me assure you on the wisdom of an older man that if you take your eye out, it is, it's not useful anymore. So he's not speaking literally here. He's saying, pluck your eye out, then pick the eye up and throw it away from you. Get it as far away from you as possible. He says the same thing with your hand. If your right hand makes you sin, I hope you're left-handed, pick it up and throw it far from you. Then he says this, it's better for you to lose one of your body parts than to go to hell. That's how serious it is. The Spirit of God is the one who convicts our hearts and works with us toward righteousness, toward obedience, toward the joy of obeying. We cooperate with the work of the Spirit by fighting sin and repenting. And when you start fighting, 
he's sure to help. And if you want to fight, that's evidence that he is helping. Again, each of these really deserves an entire sermon. Number five, we looked at justification or regeneration. He works there. He works in sanctification. And he works in the end in glorification and are going to heaven. We notice this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. The Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. He's a given, the Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. He's the surety that we're going to go to heaven if we believe the gospel. Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, when we believe, the Holy Spirit Himself secures us so that even when we are faithless, He remains faithful to the end. Romans 8, 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, we just read, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. How does He do that? We just heard in the verse, through resurrection, after we are dead, like Jesus, to the end. Romans 8, 23, not only this, but we ourselves, we having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as the sons, listen, the redemption, the glorification of, of our bodies. So the Spirit guarantees that if He saved us and He's sanctifying us, He will glorify us. I love 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Now He who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge, as a promise that he who began the good work in us will finish it until the day we see, see Jesus. So see that the Spirit is involved in our salvation, in our sanctification, in our glorification. Let's get more specific. Number six, he permanently abides with believers. We call this doctrine usually the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's not a bad term, as I said this morning, it's just incomplete. John 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, Jesus said, he will give you another helper. We'll come back to that in a moment. That he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. He's with you, but after Pentecost, he's going to be in you in two special ways. He's going to permanently abide with you as an individual believer, but he's also going to indwell the church, which is what 1 Corinthians 6 talks about when it says your body, I don't want to mess up anyone's theology, when it says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you want to think that, if you want to believe, which is not bad theology, that the Spirit of God dwells with you, dwells in you, and that you need to take care of your body, that, that's good. This is just the wrong verse. 1 Corinthians 6 says, if I can use the Southern, y'all's, y'all's, plural, body, singular, y'all's singular body, y'all's church, your church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's significant. It's a corporate indwelling as well as an individual permanent abiding dwelling. But it's not just the Holy Spirit. This is what I love about these commensurate, singular operations of the Godhead. John 14, 23, Jesus said, after just saying the Holy Spirit was with you, he will be in you. If you love, anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, my father and I, Jesus says, my father and I, will come to make our abode, our dwelling, our living place with Him. So within one passage, you have the promise that the Spirit will indwell you, the promise that the Father and the Son will come together and indwell you. We should talk about the indwelling of the Trinity, not the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What a gift. And I love the phrase, permanent abiding presence. I heard a story one time from... Uh, uh, our beloved Dr. Zimmick, who said that there was a, um, a young lady who was uh, young and heard that I think it was her father or grandfather was going to have open heart surgery. He did and came through it. Everything's fine. And she asked the mom, well, well when they opened dad's heart, did, did, 
did they see the Holy Spirit because he indwells dad. Well, that's not bad theology, but she could have asked, did they see the Trinity? But it's a little bit neoplatonic. In other words, it, it, it looks at uh, the physical and the spiritual as too disconnected. Because what if, what if I lost my leg in a, in a car accident this afternoon? Would I be less able to hold the indwelling of God than if I had my leg? Or, or what if I said that Ben Hyman is more indwelt than me because he's a lot taller than I am? That's not how it works. Instead of thinking about inside dwelling, think about God permanently abiding with a believer. I love Ezekiel, the promise of the new covenant, Ezekiel 36. It just makes me want to weep when I read this, knowing that we are experiencing this. Speaking of that one day in the future that we have experienced Prophet says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols, says the Lord. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And this is it, verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What an amazing thing. The Holy Spirit causes holiness in followers and in believers. He permanently abides with us. This last point has several subpoints. I'll just tell you those as I go along. He leads his children. He leads us. This is what we long for, and this is what we look for, I think, most when we think about the permanent abiding presence of the Spirit. Letter A, he helps us. He helps us. Don't, don't, don't underestimate the power of that phrase, he helps us. Why? Because he is the paraclete. John 14, verse 16, we keep referencing this. Let's dive into it now. I will ask the Father, Jesus says. He will give you another, the New American Standard says paraclete. Some translations say comforter, helper. The Greek word is to come along, the one who comes alongside, paraclete, that he may be with you forever. What a promise. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. You know him because you believe the gospel. He also says in John 14, 26, the same context, the same upper room discourse, but the paraclete, the helper, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said. A specific reference to the apostles who would remember everything they needed to to record the New Testament, I think. John 15, 26, when the helper, the paraclete comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. That is a loaded, loaded verse. The paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper comes. He comes from the Father. He is the spirit of truth. Jesus says, your word is truth. He's the spirit who governs and manages truth in scripture in our lives. He will testify about me. Then John 16, verse seven. But I tell you the truth, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So what does this mean, this paraclete, this helper? The Greek word is translated various ways, comforter, counselor, parakletos, literally. And the form of this word translates one called along the side of another. I remember when I was in Greek class in, way back in a long time ago, let's just say that, my first Greek class, and we came to this word, this vocabulary word, and I remember our instructor talking about it and saying that, that a good way to remember this, the meaning of this word, paraclis, paracletos, is think of someone who's running track. 
And this was meaningful to me. I, I ran the mile and the two mile when I was in high school. And uh, this happened many times. So sometimes when you're running around, your coach will come and say, you've got to get going. We got to catch that guy. We're going to lose if you don't pass those two guys. And he's on your case. He's coming alongside you. Then you go to the other side of the track and he comes back on. He says, you're doing great. Keep going. You're doing fine. That's not spiritual schizophrenia. That's coming alongside. That's what the... The Holy Spirit does. That's what this word parakaleo, to come alongside, means. Sometimes it's admonishment and correction, and sometimes it's encouragement in drawing you forward. Now, here's what's critical. Jesus says, I will send you another helper, telling us that he was the original helper, and he's going to send one like him what did Jesus do? What does the Spirit now do? Teaches us the Word, guides us into truth, convicts us about the gospel. He helps us. The Spirit is the ever-present help in trouble. And here's what's good. Here's what's wonderful. Because He permanently abides with you, no matter when you struggle, no matter how you struggle, no matter over what you struggle, he is there and he knows and he cares. I'll give you a thought that might freak you out a little bit. The Spirit of God being omnipresent and omniscient and being God, very God, permanently is with you in a way that 24-7, all the time, your whole life, he is looking right at you, never gazes anywhere else. That's a terrifying thought when I think about my sin. That's an incredible thought when I think about my needs. That's exactly the way it should be. What else does he do to lead us? Well, he fills us. This is letter B under your outline. Letter B. He fills us, which means he influences us. This is really simple. Ephesians 5.18. We usually look at the, the first part of this, but the second. Do not be drunk with wine, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. Pleroma. That word filled is an interesting Word. It literally means moved along. It was used of a, of a sail on a boat. And so pleroma is when it was the sail, sail was full of the wind and it was moved along. Some translations say, be moved along by the Spirit. He influences us. He moves us along. How? Well, the parallel is right in the verse. Don't be drunk with wine. What does wine do? What does alcohol do? It influences your thinking. Don't be influenced in your thinking by substances, Paul says. Make your life available for the Spirit of God to influence your thinking. How does he do that most? Well, compare that to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in you in Colossians chapter 3. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. What, so what does that have to do with being filled with the Spirit? I think it being filled with the Spirit and letting the word of Christ richly dwell in you are identical. They're the same thing. How do we know that? Because if you look after, after Paul says, be filled with the spirit, and after he says, let the word of Christ richly, richly dwell within you, the exact same things happen. Exact effects. You'll break forth in Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs in Ephesians and Colossians. You'll have wives submitting to husbands and husbands leading wives lovingly and thankfulness and children obeying parents and employees submitting to those who are over them in the exact same order. So they must come from the same place. So how can you be filled with the Spirit? You're filled with the Spirit, I believe, by letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. This is incredible. Letter C, he prays for us. That's how he leads us. He prays for us. In the same way, Romans 8, verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps our weakness. For we 
do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. One of the most humbling and startling realities in the Bible is that the Spirit of God is praying for you and interceding for you. He's watching you every moment of your life and praying for what he sees and praying for what he doesn't see, but he ought to see. It says here when we don't know what to pray for, I don't know if you've ever come to this place in your life. I think you will if you haven't. Where you're praying about something that's such a burden, you have prayed and you've prayed and you've wept until your tear ducts are empty. And your prayers start sounding cyclical because you're saying the same thing over and over. And you finally come to say, I, 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 I'm done. I don't know what else to say. You know my heart, God. You know what I want. You know what I need. I think this passage is saying the Spirit does. And when you run out of knowing what and how to pray, he's there to finish what you started. What a gift. Letter D, he guides us. He guides us. How does the Holy Spirit guide us? This is one of the most debated um, questions in Christianity. How does the Holy Spirit guide you? Well, he guides us obviously through scripture. He guides us through counsel. Proverbs tells us much about that. He guides us through learning from cause and effect. That's what we learned in Ecclesiastes, right? Solomon said, God's going to teach you by you learning good lessons and obeying, or if you don't, you will learn a lesson and he expects you to hear what he said through that experience. He guides us through confrontation and correction. He guides us through the conscience. And yes, listen, he guides us through holy impressions. You can see that happening in the book of Acts. Romans 8, 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Be very careful if you're saying, I got an impression from the Spirit, and I know that's from the Spirit, because you might not have the assurance that it was the Spirit leading you. That's why they're holy impressions, qualified by the Word of God, informed by the Word of God. Let me give you an example. The Lord, the Holy Spirit may not lead you to which car to buy, which house to purchase or look at, which girl or guy to date, to the specifics of that. But he leads you by giving you scripture and counselors and wisdom and people around you that are biblical means of grace so that we know how to be led by him. What makes me really concerned is when people say, well, I know God wants me to do X or Y or Z and the people around them don't think that's a good idea. That's, how do you know God's telling you that? How do you not know that? That's the devil whispering in your ear, or bad pizza you had. John 16, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Jesus said, he will guide you into all the truth. Where's the truth? It's in the word of God. And then 1 Corinthians chapter two, you know this passage well, verse 10, God revealed them, the things of God, through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no man knows except the Spirit of God. Now we receive not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. That's interesting. We are given the Spirit of God to know the things given to us by God. Where did God give us the things that we know about God? In his word, which things we also speak, not in words taught by men and wisdom, but taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, an unsaved man, does not accept the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually understood, spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises, recognizes all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In the same passage, the mind of Christ, the leading and mind of the Spirit come together. Adam will talk more about that illuminating presence of the Spirit of God in the Word of God in two weeks. He leads us. If he leads us and he prays for us, shouldn't we pray to God about his leading? Coming up to the end, letter E, he comforts us. I won't belabor this. We'll say more in coming weeks. He comforts us. And I think the main way he comforts a believer is in assurance, through assurance. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. What a gift to be assured. No greater peace can come than the Spirit of God assuring us that we are adopted and we will be consummated in our glorification with the Lord on the last day. Letter F, this is quick. He gifts us, G-I-F-T-S. He gives us gifts. We're going to talk about that all next Sunday, so I'm going to skip it, okay? But he does give gifts. That's one way he leads us is by gifting us. And lastly, letter G, he changes us. He changes us. Paul said to the Galatians, I say, walk by the Spirit. The best way to translate that is keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit is walking. Keep in step with Him. Walk alongside Him. Walk by the Spirit. And if you do so, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. I've said this so many times. I've never talked to someone in my living room in my office who said something like this. Well, um, I'm struggling with pornography or I'm struggling with being um, critical at work or I'm struggling with envy. I'm struggling with jealousy. I'm struggling with anger. I'm struggling with you fill in the blank. And you know what, Rick? I've never had better quiet times in my life than I'm having now. No one's ever said that. You know why? Because if you're walking by the Spirit, you don't carry out the desires of the flesh. Can we say it very simply? Perpetual habitual sin, unbroken sin, is not just a problem of doing that sin. It's a problem of not exercising the means of grace of walking with and by and for the Spirit. He goes on to explain, for the flesh actually sets its desire against the Spirit. There's a war going on inside of us. The flesh wants to sin, the Spirit urges us to fight sin. Spirit against the flesh, the flesh against the Spirit. For these are in opposition to one another. They're magnets that repel so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. What does it look like if you're walking by the Spirit, by the flesh and not the Spirit? This is what it looks like. Well, immorality, impurity, sensuality, that's all sexual sin in mind or in deed. Idolatry, that's putting anything above the Lord that would take your time and attention. Sorcery, that's just wicked uh, looking at demonic forces and it could be coming in a lot of different ways. Enmities, that's having fights with people. Strife, that's just being mean. Jealousy, outbursts of anger. Disputes, dissensions and factions. Envying, drunkenness, carousing. And then I love this, and things like these. It's not exhaustive. These things of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you before, those who practice such things, how serious is this? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're demonstrating that you're not a Christian if that's the trajectory and the practice habit of your life. Then there's verse 22, but... But the fruit of the Spirit, now this is interesting. These are things we should find in our lives. This is fruit. Fruit of what? You go back. When you walk with the Spirit, this is what happens. This is what it looks like. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience. The word means the ability to, 
suffer long under a trial. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility or gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. How do we do that? I love what Paul told us in Ephesians 3.16. I pray that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. In other words, he would do work in your heart, in your thinking, in your deciding, in your decision-making, so that you're choosing to walk with and by the spirit according to the word, not according to your own desires and flesh. Friends, I barely scratched the surface of what the Spirit of God does. Barely scratched it. This should be a lifetime study. Can I ask you when you're reading your Bible, just notice the work of the Spirit. It's all over the place. Enjoy it. Enact it. Cooperate with Him when you see these things he's providing. People ask me all the time, should we pray to the Spirit? Should we worship the Spirit? Should we seek to know the Spirit? I can answer that with one question. Is the Spirit God? Yeah. I found myself praying to the Spirit in my study this week, just intuitively and naturally. Spirit, open my mind so that I can understand your word. You wrote it. Of course you can pray to the Spirit. Of course you can talk to the Son. And of course you can talk to the Father. Because they have interlocking operations because there is one God. We don't pray to part of God, we pray to God anytime you address. So we worship, we pray, we seek, and we know the Spirit of God. He's doing a lot of things. I think we'll be blessed when we recognize those and cooperate with Him. Father, please help us to recognize and know you through your Spirit because of your Son, Guard our minds from chopping you up into three sections or parts, but help us to see that the admonition, admonition you gave Israel is ours. The Lord our God is one. We don't fully understand that, but we know that to see you in either of the three of your persons is to see you. So help us to know you, to love you, to worship you, to obey what you said in your word by the aid and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.